my first motivation was the women and girls of Afghanistan. In the past, I have been doing that for them because I was thinking that seeing me, they can follow my footsteps. And that was true. But now everything was changed. Like in the past, I was expecting them or I was trying to invite more women and girls into sports whatever sports but now they don't have the rights to study and to go to school and i thought the best thing to do is now to raise awareness about the girls and women of a nation that they are deprived of education in 21st century and to ask support I know like these dark times are going to be over there is going to be a finish line for all of these dark days for Afghan women and girls in Afghanistan. But it's going to be much easier when their voices are being heard by the world and when the world is going to stand and support them. That's going to make everything a little bit different. It's going to give them a strength to fight. But when they think that no one is hearing them, their voices are not being heard, no one cares about them, it's going to be more difficult for them. So I thought I'm going to do that to be able to raise voices for them. This is the Metal Set. Hi, this is Dawn, an ultra cyclist and sports PR specialist. And I'm Afshan, an endurance athlete and journalist. And we're on a quest to bring you stories of tenacity, courage, and metal. From athletes in the Middle East and beyond. Racing in a 70.3 Ironman championship is no small feat for anyone. But for our guest Zainab Razai, this wasn't just a personal achievement, but a collective one for women in Afghanistan. If you missed recent headlines about the first Afghan woman to compete the 70.3 championship in Utah in the United States on October 28th, we are here to tell you, Zainab made history. And it's no surprise that getting there was far from straightforward. Let's set this up right. Afghanistan is a country where people have been suffering for decades as a result of war and terror. And women have been repressed and denied their rights in many areas of life. Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan in 2021 made matters so much worse for women who are now battling for their right to education and inclusion in public life. In fact, Taliban officials told reporters in 2021 that women's sports was neither appropriate nor necessary. Afghan women won't be allowed to play the kind of sports where they get exposed. Yet, women like Zainab have continued to resist and grab every opportunity to break the shackles of fundamentalism. Zainab was born as an Afghan refugee in Iran and returned to her homeland with her family at the age of nine. Her father was determined to send his daughters to school and university, and this is where Zainab developed her love for running. She went on to complete not just a marathon, but an ultra-marathon in the Gobi Desert. She then met American journalist Jackie Fay, who was embedded with the NATO troops in Afghanistan. And that's how her triathlon journey began. Jackie's NGO, She Can Try, helped her and three other Afghan athletes learn how to swim and bike and took them to see their first Ironman in Dubai in 2019. Zainab trained to do the 2020 edition in Dubai under the toughest conditions. Limited access to a pool, riding only on an indoor trainer for hours and running early mornings within the NATO premises. She completed it and then set her sights for the championship. This, as we all now know, came after one of the hardest phases of her life. 
when she had to flee Afghanistan after the Taliban takeover on August 15, leaving her family behind. Now, a Fulbright scholar completing her master's in social entrepreneurship at the Colorado State University College of Business, Zainab's championship finish this year was bittersweet. Her representation on the global stage is testament to sports being a unifying factor and providing a level field for everyone. But is it also a platform to raise awareness of the plight of Afghan people lest they are forgotten in the news media cycle? In this conversation, which you may need to brace yourself for, we have very high highs when Zainab talks about her parents and achievements and massive lows when she narrates all her challenges as an athlete and the ill-fated day when she had to flee her homeland. We were at a loss for words at the end of this chat and left with so much respect for Zainab's resolve. We're very grateful to her for taking the time to speak with us and hope this conversation provides food for thought to you. Let's get into it. Zainab, it's a privilege to connect with you all the way from Colorado, right? And we're speaking to you at 10 p.m. Yes. Yeah. Thank you awesome. so much for having me. And this is just weeks after you made history as the first Afghan woman to race and finish Ironman 70.3 World Championships, which was in Utah. Yes. So congratulations and what a journey you've had with all the challenges that you probably had to endure. just to get training and get there right for the championships and so thank you for taking out the time to speak with us just between your busy schedule at university thank you so much yeah for having me and for your interest in my story yeah so tell us a little bit about you know what you're doing at university at the moment Currently I'm studying for my master program I'm doing an MBA and my concentration is social entrepreneurship I'm going to graduate in a few weeks mid December I'm going to graduate and we are working on a project our project is about immigration and refugees that I personally really feel it Yeah. because of what happened last year in 2021 in August and we had so many refugees from Afghanistan and later from Ukraine so our project is how we can empower refugees and immigrants economically in the United States so you moved to the US in 2020 correct no i moved in the US 2021 august 2021 Right. just one day after Taliban took over. We'll get into that a little more because we want to hear all about that experience. Um I think we've all seen it play out, you know, over in the news and I personally have a friend whose family was affected by that, so I was following it closely just in shock really. But before we talk about that, we wanted to I guess go far far back, back to your childhood. So correct me if I don't have this right, but you were born in Iran and then moved to Afghanistan at the age of 9, is that right? Yeah. And so I guess talk us through kind of, you know, early life and then moving back and starting life in Iran and then moving to Afghanistan. Yeah, so I don't remember a lot when we were in Iran because I was a child, but I can say it was both good and not good time because Iran was secure and uh, we were going to school for some time but there was a time when we decided to go back to Afghanistan during that time the Iranian government made everything so hard for Afghan refugees and they were charging Afghan students so much money that my father as a worker could not afford to send three of us to school and the legal situation and everything was getting much harder for Afghans and that was the time when um uh, the Taliban um 
were gone um, after 2000 to, uh, after 2002, and the U.S. was in the United States. So, uh, and the U.S. was in Afghanistan. So uh, that was the time that my father decided to come back to Afghanistan because Taliban was not there. And he thought that uh, it's the best thing for all of us. We can go to school in Afghanistan. And um, at the end of the day, it's our country. We can, we can make our lives back in our country. Right. And... Were there opportunities? So you went back to uh, to Afghanistan. You went into school. Were there opportunities for you as a woman to play sport? So that was the very early year that the Taliban were gone, and uh, school was just restarted. Uh, I I remember that uh, we did not have like good infrastructure. There were not enough roads, schools, hospitals uh, for the first two years. I studied under the tent uh, in in hot summer days and in cold winter days. Uh, I clearly remember all those hardships, but also the other thing that we could see that each day everything was changing. Each day you could see some development, even if it was not rapid, but you could see some um, level of improvements in people's life in the country, and that was that was hopeful for. All Afghans. Right. Uh, so then, you know, moving on from there, you went into university. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about that time. And then did sport feature then for you? How did sport also come into your life? Yeah, so uh, I uh, started to go to back to school when we were back uh, in Afghanistan. And also when we were back, we were called returnees. So we have refugees and returnees, returnees are the ones who are coming back to the country. And for returnees, there were some programs, like different kind of kind of programs by nonprofits, like uh, art schools and um, uh, English classes and uh, tailoring. And one of the classes that had very few uh, interested participants was uh, their sport classes and their sport was Kung Fu. Uh, at the beginning, so that was the only uh, opportunity, the only athletic opportunity in our city or neighborhood, and uh, I really wanted to take part in that. So instead of going to art classes, English classes, or other classes, I I was one of the very few students in that class. So you know that was a non-profit, that was a project. It wasn't like a club, or it wasn't very structured. We didn't have a lots of facilities or a space it was a very small room that we were practicing so i can say we weren't doing that professionally but at least we could be active physically and that was a good feeling for us and besides that i was going to elementary school and then later to secondary school i finished my high school in Herat province of afghanistan and later um, i got a scholarship in 2015 before that, I got accepted to a public university in Afghanistan to study English language and literature. And then later, after two years, I got a scholarship to study at the American University of Afghanistan in Kabul, where I started to study Bachelor of Business Administration. My concentration was in management and my minor was in law. And then when I moved to Kabul, that was another story because I was coming from, it was very conservative regarding 
women's activity or women making decision for themselves. And there were very few girls that were allowed by their families and parents or dads to go and live alone by themselves. But I'm lucky enough that I have a father who was not limiting me or restricting me. When I asked him if I can go and move to Kabul to study, he didn't say no. So that was good. And I myself have a lot, had a lot of stress because Harwat was small, very conservative. And I was moving to Kabul. It was the capital of the country. It was still in Afghanistan, but Kabul was a much bigger city. And I know that people judge me because of me living alone. I know like some people may not understand what does it mean to live alone by yourself in a country. Like in other countries, it's okay, but in some countries it's not okay. So I felt that I might be judged, but still I took the opportunity and I moved to Kabul and moving to Kabul and living independently taught me a lot of lessons and I can say it changed my life. Right. I think it warms our heart to hear that your father was so supportive. Yeah, it's very yeah, nice. That's... How many children are in the family? Like, how many brothers and sisters do you have? I have one older sister and four brothers. And four brothers. Wow. <laughs> Big family. So you started Kung Fu in elementary school <laughs> and then went to university in Kabul. And in 2017, you completed your first marathon. So at some point when you were in university and kind of, you know, this whole new world. And I remember my own experience, you know, going to a big city for university. You know, I think some elements of that are universal, but then also, you know, all of the different factors in play with you going from, you know, a small town in Afghanistan to Kabul. How did you find sport again? What led you to completing that marathon in 2017 and then heading right into an ultra marathon. <laughs> when I was doing Kung Fu, it was with the organization. So it was only one, one and a half years. And I didn't play any sport after that because there were no athletic opportunities for women in Herat. There were not a lot of, I can't say very few, one or two, maybe clubs, indoor clubs, no outdoor sports at all. And when I moved to Kabul in 2015, I was only studying, so I thought it's good to have some extracurricular activity. I didn't know what I want to do. But the next semester, our dormitory street was flooded. And then they took us to another dormitory. I met with two other roommates. They were running for an ultra. And it was very interesting for me that girls are running on streets. When I asked them uh, more, they said that they are training for an ultra and it was a 250 kilometer ultra marathon in Sri Lanka. They were training very early in the morning, like 4 a.m., 5 a.m., because they didn't want to be harassed on the street by men or they didn't want anything to treat them. It's still like early in the morning, there might be some other treats, like the street dogs in Kabul are not like other dogs. <laughs> <so. laughs> Uh, if someone has been chased by dogs a lot on a bike, like, <laughs> they're no joke. <laughs> yeah, so they were training very early in the morning when there was no sunshine. And one day I asked them if I can join join them, and they said, they were hesitant, but they said yes, okay? And I joined them, uh, and that day they were planning to run at 10K on the street, so I ran with them. I didn't know what is a 10K, running a 10K like? I didn't have a watch to track it, so I, I was just following them. 
And then when we finished the run, they told me, Zainab, you know what? You ran a 10K today nonstop, and it's your first run. We are so proud of you. So you should be the next person who is going to do the, uh, the ultra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> feeling like at the end of that 10K for you, because you didn't have a watch, you didn't have paces that you were like setting yourself to. So what was the feeling like right after you ended that run? I think I didn't, like now when I ran 10K, I understand how hard it is, but I didn't <laughs> understand how hard it was at that time, maybe because of the feeling of excitement that I was doing that for the first time and was feeling free to run. So it was all excitement. I think that's the reason that I didn't understand how hard it was. But after that, I didn't know again about it. But after what they told me, I was happy with myself and motivated to do more sports or to run more. You and, had the runners high. <laughs> and then later, Free to Run was an organization that helped them to train and participate in for that ultramarathon. But that year in 2016, that was the first run decided to formally launch in Afghanistan and recruit their first mixed gender running team. So I applied for that and I got recruited. So that was, I can't say the first mixed gender running team in Kabul. And we started training with them. So training was not easy, as I mentioned, because of the security issues and the threats on the streets. They were taking, picking up the girls from their houses, taking them to the training sessions or to the training places, and then dropping back to their houses. That way they wanted to get their parents' support. And also, like not all the streets were safe. They were trying to identify safe places mm -hmm. and taking the girls to do safe places. So they were very limited safe places for girls to be able to run. And when you were training now with running, were your family and, you know, brothers and sister aware that you got the running bug and that you were now running? So I, I didn't tell them about I'm running until I started to train for my first marathon. Where was your first marathon? My first marathon was in Bamiyan, Afghanistan. Bamiyan was one of the safest provinces in Afghanistan during the past 20 years, like before the Taliban taking over again. And it was one of the mixed gender international sports we had some international runners coming to, to the province as well so when i was training for that race i started to, to share it with my family and when i was telling for example my father i'm doing a marathon and later I'm an ultra marathon he did not know what a marathon or, or ultra marathon is it was like not so many people know about marathon, ultra marathon, or triathlon in Afghanistan. It's because they have not been exposed to it and they have not been thinking about sports because they have been into war for several decades. And when I was telling to my dad, I'm doing an ultra marathon or marathon, I was asking, what is it? I was explaining to him. But what he was saying is he was saying that at least it's good for your health. Whatever it is, it's good for your health. Yeah. So, yeah. Now I think about running a 10K because I'm a cyclist primarily. I know off, like Afshan's kind of out running all the time, but I'm like, oh, 10K is so hard. And to just go out for your first run at a 10K, you are a natural athlete, you know, like to do that. That's amazing. 
I mean, I just went for a 7K this morning and it felt hard. So <laughs> no matter what distance you do, it starts getting challenging on a run. So uh, you had already signed up for your ultra before your marathon? No, we, we were told that we are selected to do the ultra uh, once we finish our marathon. So I and my friend, we were running buddies. We were running together and we were not missing any training sessions and we were showing a lot of interest. Her name is Hasina. We two were selected once we finished the marathon to run and race the ultra marathon in Gubi Desert. What in 2008. Yeah, what was that like? <laughs> I'm like, wow. I mean, I still struggle to wrap my head around those distances for running. 250 kilometers. Yeah, it's right. Insane. And so, was that a multi-day run? Talk us through it. So I don't know if I should talk about the race itself or training for it because as some point of time, I was feeling that the training for the ultra was much harder than the race itself because training, it's, if it's for a triathlon race, if it's for an ultra or marathon, I feel the commitment, it's not the first thing, at least the second. The first thing is motivation. Like what motivates you to accept this challenge is the first thing. And then, then the next one is commitment. So if you have both of them, I'm sure you will have a good result. So for me, we had the motivation, but for the commitment, we were training again very early in the morning, but I was studying for my undergrad and also working full time. So managing training for ultra marathon, working so many time, yeah, attending to my classes at night, it was so difficult. Like I was suffering from a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> Do and... you look back on pictures then and were like, I was so tired. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I was sleeping in my classes. So yeah, the training was challenging. And then how I was trying to manage the full-time work, school and training, that was the most challenging part. And we had a lot of uncertain things happens. Like sometimes some not good news or bad news were happens, like some explosion or some things that were happening that mentally you were not feeling okay or yeah, feeling good to you. do. Yeah. yeah. And also like the training portion was, uh, I can't say the hardest. And then the race it itself, it was my first ultra marathon and it was multi-stage self-supported uh, ultra. It was hard, but also very beautiful. Like the community who were there, I think more than 200 athletes from different countries were there. So, and that was my first international race to meet with international athletes, runners, to talk to them, to exchange ideas. So that was very beautiful and how supportive they were. And uh, the race was hard, especially the first two days, because it was self-supported. Our backpacks were heavy, were heavy for the first two days. And we started as a group. So we wanted to finish as a group or as a team, but oh, my friend, she got injured. Her ankle was swollen, so she quit in day four. And I finished the race without her. That was not what we were imagining. But Gooby Desert was very beautiful. Like before the race, I was thinking Gooby Desert is going to be a real desert. It's going to be hot sand, but it was not like that. It was green and we had one stage that we had sand dune, but every stage, uh, every day, we had very beautiful sceneries. One scenery that I never forget was that uh, I was so tired 
And I was just trying to push myself. And then all of a sudden, a group of horses run in front of me, wild horses, and they were so beautiful. So that was like a dream, very beautiful. And yeah, the race was both hard and beautiful. I think there's always that one thing in your race that kind of renews your faith in what you're doing, right? It's those moments, yeah, for sure, yeah. during a race that give you hope, you know, yeah. really. Sometimes because it's mentally and physically exhausting. And then, you know, you have a moment like this with you seeing the horses or the beauty that you kind of maybe wouldn't appreciate if you weren't in that situation. It's really nice. How long did it take you to finish that race? So the race was during seven days. One day was kind of off because the day before we had the long march, it was 80 kilometers and you had the full day to, to do it. So it was seven, seven days and everyone was doing the seven days. The last day was not a complete day. So the last day was only, I think, 11 or 13 kilometers. You were like, I've got this now. Yeah. <laughs> what were your thoughts when you crossed the finish line? After finish line, you feel relieved that it's over. I had the, the same feeling because whenever I race, I don't see that as my own race. I see that as Afghan women and girls race. So I feel that's my responsibility to finish and cross the finish line. Yeah. So whenever I finish it, I feel this was my responsibility and I did it. Yeah. You've now had a taste of three sports, but is running still your favorite? Not recently because like I, I've been suffering from some shin splints. Okay. So that was 2018, 250 kilometers across the Mongolian Gobi Desert. I'm still wrapping my head around ultra running <laughs> as someone who is not a natural runner. And then after that, you went right into Ironman. How did that happen? As I mentioned earlier, we did not have enough safe places for us to train. One of the safe places that Freeshrun, the organization was taking us, was a military base. That was one of the few places that uh, we could run freely and feeling safe. So to get there, we had to have some volunteers from inside the military who could bring us in. And uh, Jackie Faye was one of those volunteers. She was working uh, as a journalist in Afghanistan. And when we were training for our ultramarathon, she was training for her sixth uh, Ironman in sixth continent. She was training for her last Ironman in sixth continent in one year. So that was when I met her and we were running together. And when we were running together, she was talking about what she's, uh, what, uh, she's doing. She was talking about triathlon and what it is, but I had no idea about it. I didn't know what does a triathlon mean, how much is a 1.9 kilometer swimming, 90 kilometer cycling and a, a half marathon at the end mean, or the full distance that she was doing. I, I could not understand that. And once we were back from the race, uh, she said that she's going to uh, establish her organization. She can try to train the first Afghan triathletes. And because like triathlon is a very, I can say a very expensive race, she could only afford, or she had the resources for four Afghan women to train them. Some of my friends and I applied for that and I and three other friends, we got accepted to her team. 
And then that was so the first Afghan woman triathlete team. But still, like, we didn't know what we signed up for, what we are recruited for. None of us, none of us know how to swim, how to float underwater. Some of us know how to cycle, but not a road bike. But we all uh, were runners. We could run. <laughs> that was yeah. the only one. And uh, Jackie Fishy herself knew that we did not know about triathlon. So she, so she decided to take us to Dubai in 2019 to see, to see an Ironman event or a triathlon event uh, for the first time. And for the first time when I saw the triathlon event, the swimming portion was really uh, frightening me, especially the start song that was a heartbeat. It was giving me a lot of stress <laughs> and I really wanted to cry because I was what I signed up for. Am I going to be able to do this next year? So seeing how athletes were jumping into the ocean, that was very frightening for me. And I wasn't believing myself that in a year I'm going to do that. Did you also train in Dubai? So the first time we went to see the, the race, uh, Jackie Faye took us to a swimming pool. And I can still remember her face when she saw none of us even can float underwater. Like you could <laughs> see the disappointment in her, in her face. And we were not also feeling so bad. So we all started to do some YouTube being to start from very zero, how we can float, how we can breathe, how we can kick in the water. So we did some uh, small training, but the main purpose of that was to see a triathlon even uh, for the first time. But later we had uh, also one uh, training camp in Dubai, one training camp in uh, Abu Dhabi and another training camp in Spain. That was because we did not have a tra trainer in Afghanistan and it was not easy to cycle and we didn't have road bike until like very few months before the race because we could not like cycle around Kabul. It was difficult. The swimming was very difficult in Kabul with the 6 million population that half of them can be women, 3 million. There were only two small swimming pool for women and they were not proper for training. They were small, very crowded and also very expensive. So these training camps were really help, helping us to work with volunteers, to have some swimming clinics and yeah, some cycling, some road biking and also running. Wow. As someone who's not a great swimmer, like just thinking about all those challenges to get to a level where you can swim is really mind boggling. And it's testament to your character, I think, you know. <laughs> finding a way to do that. It's amazing. So you did the swimming, like the, the two pools within Afghanistan, is that where you trained primarily? And then cycling, was that within the base that you had trained at before? Yeah. So we were swimming in one of two swimming pools and uh, for cycling before we got the road bicycle, we were uh, training on a stationary bikes. And we were still uh, running with free strand into places that they were running. But mm -hmm. we got our, four, uh, our road bikes like around four or five months before the race. So then we started to do some cycling inside Kabul and also in, another, in Bamiyan, which was safe. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, when you were training for your marathon and then for the ultra marathon, as is you were struggling to kind of schedule your runs into 
work and everything else that life throws at you. How were you managing three disciplines, swimming, running, cycling, while everything else that you have going on in life? I don't know. What, what training look like? I don't know how I did that, but yeah, again the same thing. We were going for once, two or three uh, running sessions per week, very early in the morning, and then our weekends on our weekends like Sunday and in Afghanistan it was mostly Friday and Saturday. So on Friday and Saturday uh, we were going to swimming pool early in the morning and doing the cycling session. So two cycling sessions, two cycling swimming, two to three running sessions were usually a part of our training plan. You were working then or were you studying as well? Like what was it? Yes. Like? Working was hard. Like we were going to training very early because the car had to pick up uh, girls from their houses. So to pick one, two, it was taking time. And then until we get to the training place, we were running for one hour or one hour, 30 minutes, less or more. And then to come back, Kabul was the capital. It was very crowded. The streets were narrow. So it was the traffic was or maybe is so bad in Afghanistan. So it was taking so much time for us just to commute to the training places. And then uh, sometimes I was taking my clothes with myself and changing in the car or changing at work. Sometimes I was trying to come back, take a shower and change and then go to work. And then coming back from the work, we were uh, working until 4 p.m. So the traffic was so bad. It was taking at least one hour or one hour, 10 minutes for me to come back to university. So coming back after work directly to my classes from wow. 5 to 8, 8.30. <laughs> and then at night, sometimes I could study. Sometimes I it was difficult to study and I was just trying to go to sleep. <laughs> that sounds exhausting. I know. <laughs> it does. Um, it was exhausting. And I, I honestly... can't imagine you must be sleep deprived all the time. <laughs> I was hoping that that was, uh, it's going to be finished. It's going to be our once, once I'm going to be done with the rest, that's going to be our. But uh, after that, it has been always the same for me. Like once I was finished with that, with the training for ultra, then training for the triathlon. Then when I'm here, like now, right now, also my program is very accelerated. It's a full-time accelerated MBA program. So it was also very difficult for me to manage both of my training and school here. And also it was not only school and training right now. So to, to be able to stay in the US, I, I'm, I'm trying to apply for asylum or to try to find a pathway for me to be able to stay in the US. So the, the US immigration system is very com complex and it's not easy. So going through all of these was also very, difficult for me and taking a lot of my time and energy. And uh, I came to the U.S. To, to do my master's degree, not in a good time or so in a difficult right, circumstances. It yeah. was, yeah, right after the Taliban took take over, my family was still back in Afghanistan. And I had that cerebral guilt with myself that I'm here safe while they are not. And on the, at the very beginning, uh, when I arrived here, I was trying so much to, to be able to get them evacuated from Afghanistan, but I was not able. So then we thought like Taliban now took the power, at least there's going to, there's not going to be 
a, a conflict. Yeah. But there are still like explosion and attacks and uh, displacements and not good news. So dealing with, with all of these and also training in a school was again hard, like when I was training for my ultra or my for my first triathlon. Yeah, it's wow. very mentally taxing, emotionally and mentally taxing, right? So that just definitely also takes a toll on your physical body. Just going back to the first Ironman, because we want to talk about all of this and learn more about all the circumstances of you leaving Afghanistan for sure. When you get to the UAE, February 2020 was the first 70.3 Ironman that you've done. And right before the pandemic as well, <laughs> kind of changed everything for everyone. Did you feel ready? Because these circumstances for training, you're, you know, people here in Dubai, are, I think are quite spoiled, right? We've got tons of facilities, cycling infrastructure. Did you feel ready when you were on the start line of that first Ironman? So of course, I was not expecting myself to win the race, but to finish the race. But I wish like I had a trainer to tell me like where I am at, what should be my expectation from, uh, from myself. Like there were so many good volunteers that helped us, give us, uh, gave us so many good fit, uh, feedbacks, advices, tips, but still I was feeling like if there was sometime, uh, some time, a person, a person who could uh, really guide us through what we are going to go through. That would be much uh, helpful. And uh, as I mentioned, like the cycling portion, Dubai race was flat. Uh, it was flat. Like I could do, I felt I could do more, but we got uh, our road bikes very, like four months before the race and we did not have enough cycling training. Like we were training on a stationary bike for, I trained on a stationary bike for two hours or three hours, but I've not... Not done on the, road. the same on the road bike. Mm -hmm. So I wish like if I could do like 90 kilometers to test myself uh, before there was time I'm going to do that, uh, that would be like very helpful. But still with, with all of that, like I could finish the race and I was not expecting to win, to win the race, but yeah, that was my first experience. <laughs> but I think that was a good introduction to what you can achieve, right? And then you went on to sign up for the championship, which again is a massive achievement. You're you're racing with so many athletes from all over the world and elite athletes from all over the world. So definitely a great, great introduction. So when you know when you joined She Can Try, what was the support that you were receiving from them throughout the process? Like there are so many reasons that why uh, Afghan women and girls are not participating in sports. First, uh, Afghanistan was into war for several decades and all they have been thinking was survival, how to feed themselves. Uh, so that was the case with them. And that kept Afghan men, mostly I can say, or Afghan women mindsets to be close-minded or to be restricted. So they were not thinking about women have rights, like there were a lot of women rights violations in Afghanistan, and that's the main reason is war. And then the next was, uh, the next thing is the economic situation, like Afghans are not in a good economic situation. They cannot afford a simple bike, a city bike for themselves. How can they support like fancy triathlon equipment or 
even the running shoes, uh, it's difficult to get a running shoes in Afghanistan. Like when we were training, most of the time our running shoes were secondhand running shoes. So the economic situation is, uh, is another reason, and that's the main important reason. And not all Afghan women and girls were independent. So I feel like the one reason that I could attend and participate into sport was that was that I was independent. I could earn some money for myself, and also I could earn some money to support my family. That way I could get some independence to make decisions for myself uh, regarding what I want to do and what I don't want to do. So to solve these problems, like free to run and she can try, they came to be a, to, to support women and girls. So they know the economic situation of Afghanistan. They know that women are not independent and they were trying to empower, like the main reason to help Afghan women and girls to be able to play a sport was to empower them in their life to be leaders in their life to make decisions for themselves. So first run and she can try first, um, as I mentioned earlier, both of them were trying to find safe places for women and girls to be able to run. That was the first thing. And then they were providing them very basic needs that is required to train with. Running shoes, giving them running shoes or some, some other very necessary uh, training facilities and she can try. So I personally, even if I was working, I personally could not afford to go to one of the swimming pools twice a week. So she can try was paying for that and to go to like the running to safe places to be able to run, she uh, can try or free to run. They were arranging the transportation for us. So these are some of the examples that they helped us to, to, to train with. Okay, so just going back to 2021, you know, you're, you're training and then everything stops, right? When Taliban takes over. Can you talk about what that situation was like for you and your family and just kind of having to leave everything behind, you know, your heart as well? Yeah, so once I was done with the race in February 2020, then the pandemic started yeah. and I'm sure that most of us feel that we did not do anything significant in that in that year. Some people might, but many most of us might think that way. And that was the same for me. We were in lockdown, we couldn't do a lot of things. And in 2021 and also late 2020, that was where the peace negotiation started with the US and the Taliban. And these were very critical times uh, for Afghans. Everyone was trying to follow news, what's going to happen to them, what is the peace negotiation going on, who are included, who are not included. So everyone was trying to follow them. And then as the peace negotiation was uh, moving forward, they were making some deals, different kind of deals. For example, one of the deals that I still cannot understand about it was releasing 5,000 Taliban prisoners. That way they could get power and they made more of these deals. And once the Taliban gained more power, they started to capture province by province in Afghanistan. And then when they were capturing provinces, it was very difficult time for us. We could not believe that Taliban are making progress. And it was so sad, like the conflict was high. 
Sometimes, like the government or the soldiers were fighting back the Taliban, they could get the power of the province. But a week or two weeks later, again, the Taliban were gaining the power. So these were very, I don't know to say, emotional times for us. And we were still hopeful with the Taliban, even with the Taliban progress, we were still hopeful that, no, they cannot, they cannot take over the country. Uh, it has been 20 years that everyone worked toward uh, the progress and development of Afghanistan. There has been a lot of achievements and the Taliban cannot regain power. They cannot come into power and take the control of the whole country. We were still hopeful, but in August, as they were progressing, it was happening. Like they were, they take provinces so fast. So meanwhile, uh, in 2021, I applied for Fulbright scholarship to come to uh, to US and the process was lengthy. So you apply, you you are invited for an interview. Once you pass the interview, you, you should pass, for example, TOEFL exam, GRE exam. You should get admission. So all of these were also under process. And I was ho hopeful that I'm going to get uh, my master's degree. Like Fulbright was kind of a dream for me. And then in August or in before that, like in July, everything was final. I got my visa and uh, I had my tickets. It was a schedule for August 16. And then in August, early August, there were a lot of news about Taliban. And on August 15, one day before I travel, early in the morning, I went to get my PCR uh, test. It was like a normal day. Kabul was crowded as always, women and girls were going to work. Uh, it was like a normal day. And, but at the clinic, it was very crowded because so many people uh, know about the Taliban progress and they wanted to leave the country. And it took me longer, so it was already known. And when I was coming home, I could see that people were kind of terrified and I could not understand why is that. And everyone was rushing toward their homes. The shops were closing and I could not understand that until I got home and checked my phone and saw the news that was saying the Taliban are behind Kabul's gate. It was so shocking and unbelievable for us. We could not believe that that happened. And even before that, I wanted to go back to Herat to meet my family for the last time before I traveled to US because they couldn't come to Kabul. And that didn't happen because they took over uh, Herat first. And then on August 15, everything happened in a few hours. Like first at noon, we heard that Taliban are behind Kabul gates. In less than two hours, we heard that uh, President Ashraf Ghani is, President Ashraf Ghani fled the country. Yeah. So that was another shocking news that we could not believe. And then a few minutes later, my friends called me and said that uh, she, he was also going to come to U.S. for his master's degree. He called me that all the commercial uh, commercial flights are canceled. And if you are traveling tomorrow, he was saying, I'm sure that you cannot because the commercial flights are canceled. They are evacuating international communities like those who are working embassies or other organizations. So there is no commercial flight. And I didn't know what's going to happen. And then a few minutes later, 40 minutes later, maybe I saw a picture that the Taliban are already inside the presidential palace. So everything was unbelievable for me. And then I was in contact with my friends. I could not, my internet was not 
very good so i could not check my flights but i asked my friends to check my flight and they uh, they told me that your flight is on you should be good to go but after that like in that evening i could hear like we could hear from our house that every five minutes there was a flight every five everyone was evacuated and it was very horrifying for us we were thinking like everyone is leaving we are going to be with the taliban and we don't know what's going to happen to, to us because I'm also a minority, part of a minority group, ethnic group in Afghanistan that was, that has been a Hazara, a Hazara ethnic group that has been persecuted du during the past 20 years and even during very long time ago. So we were very ter terrified. And then that night it was, I don't remember like these two, the August 15 and 16. I don't remember. I, I don't forget them. And then we were, it was a lot of emotions. The only thing we were thinking was that what is going to happen to whatever we have achieved and what's going to happen to us tomorrow. And then I was in contact with Jackie Faye. She was telling me I need to go to the airport and stay uh, the night uh, at the airport. But then it became, it was already 9 p.m. and uh, the Taliban announced a curfew time that no one can come out of their houses. And for the next day, I was still hopeful and my sister was saying that you should take the opportunity and travel tomorrow. If not, you don't know, maybe you're going to be stuck in Afghanistan forever. So I tried to find a taxi driver to take us to the airport, but no one was willing to do that. Everyone was terrified. Even if you were offering them money, no one was willing to take you to the airport until I talked to the uh, to my friend's uncle. She gave her his number to me and he accepted. The reason is that maybe he was in Kabul during the first Taliban period, so he might not be that, that afraid. The next morning, like that night, we could not sleep. We were cr crying, all of us. Uh, I was with my sister, my brother, my fiance, my husband, and and myself. And then the next day, when my friend's uncle came, and when I stepped out of the house, and also like during the past two weeks, I went shopping for my US journey, for my Fulbright journey. I packed my bicycle, my equipment. You were excited. Yeah, but I could not, it was difficult like to take them because I also saw the pictures from the airports, how chaotic it was at the airport. So the first thing in the morning I stepped out of my house was to see girls in their school uniform. And I thought everything that happened yesterday was a bad dream. It was a nightmare and it's not real. But that was the first day. And maybe those girls did not know what has happened. And uh, they were just going to school as we got into the city, to the street. Uh, the face of the city was changed. Kabul was not yesterday's Kabul anymore. It was mm -hmm. not crowded. Women and women were not on the street. It was all only Taliban with their guns. So many checkpoints that we had to pass. We were ter terrified. Like we were, I was trying personally to wear more cover, um, to be more covered. Um, but that was the first time. And the Taliban, on the other hand, were trying to play nice. Because I think that, you know, everyone was eyes on what's happening and yeah. yeah. And you know, the reality of Taliban and when they are playing in ice, it's, it's, it's you know, there's, a, there's an agenda. Yeah. Yes. And when we get uh, to the ear at the airport, it was very crowded. 
everyone was trying to get inside the airport and then the Taliban was trying to take order of the traffic, but they could not because they were not coming from a civilization. They were coming from mountains and fighting. And we started to walk inside the airport. And as we were going inside the airport, all of a sudden, all of a sudden shooting started, like the Taliban were shooting from inside the airport. And then a U.S. Army were shooting from inside. So it was a very terrifying moment for us. Like I haven't been into that situation in the past. Like I have been traveling from Kabul's airport to, to come to Dubai, to race, to come to Mongolia, to go to see my family but this was very different experience and then there was an american soldier that were asking uh those who have u.s passports or u.s citizens go from this door i went to him and showed my passport and visa and say i'm i have a visa can i go through this door and he said yes everyone was going through that door and passing through that door everyone was pushing it was so difficult just to pass from that door once Everyone we was passed, desperate. So true. Yeah. Once we passed that door, we were at the departure side. And that was where you could see everyone there wandering around airplanes full of people, the airplanes that were not supposed to take off. They were full of people. You could see like older women and men coming out of those airplanes, out of breath. And then there were barbed wires. People were on this side and then the U.S. Army were on the other side. People were trying to pass the barbed wires in any ways. I was in contact with Jack Fee. Jack Fee told me to go and show your passport and visa to one of those American soldiers. I did the same, but they were not listening to me. And that was where I hurt my hands and my feet. My clothes were torn. So my husband, he was saying, let's go back home. We are going to be killed because they were they were shooting in the air. We are going to be killed. Let's go home. I said, no, let's let's push. Maybe it's going to happen. And then we went to a, to a side of the airport, which was less crowded. I talked to one of the soldiers. He said, OK, I'm going to talk to my boss. At the same time, some other people came. And they were Afghans, but they had like passport from Germany, Australia, or other countries. And then they told them, the soldiers told them to stand in a corner. We are going to take them to the other side of the airport. I told them, I have a visa. Can I go and stand with them? They said, no, you cannot. Then I became angry and told them, like, is it because they have a passport from other countries? Their passport color is different than mine. That's why their lives matter more than me. And then the soldier told me, back up, it does not work that way. Meanwhile, again, I was in contact with Jack Fish. She was telling me to go uh, and enter from another gate to the airport. But coming all the way that we came and going back to the other gate, that was taking us two or three hours and maybe somehow impossible. And she told me, either you're going to that, that gate or you're going to stay in Afghanistan forever. So I decided to go to that gate, but at the same time, she know an Italian officer. She was in contact with her. So the Italian officer directly called me and he said, I'm coming to pick you, you, where are you? And then I saw him from the crowd. I waved at him and then he talked to the American soldiers and they let me to sit in his car and go to the other side of the airport. And that was the time I could not like have a proper goodbye 
to my husband. We just wave our hands. It was so quick. And that was really heartbreaking for me because I could not, what I have been imagining for myself that I'm coming, uh, I'm going to U.S. to study. It's going to be a celebration for me. I'm going to have my family at the airport for my farewell. We're going to hug and kiss each other, taking some pictures, but none of them happened. And then we went to the other side of the airport, which was the military side. At the military side, I stood in the line with some other people, but... And I saw that uh, my flight was Turkish airline. I saw the Turkish airline landed. I thought it's going to be my flight. My flight was Turkish airline. When I went and stood in the line, one of them came to me, is your name on the list? Uh, I told my name, but they said, no, your name is not on the, on the list. I said, isn't this this flight? I told the flight number. They said, yes, but it's changed to a charter plane. It's not a commercial plane anymore, so you cannot travel. I told them, I'm not going to stay in Turkey. I'm going to travel to to U.S. And they went and talked to each other. Uh, some of them came to me and said, no, you cannot board. But again, later, one of them came to me and he said, I'm going to make a decision and you're going to be with us on this plane. I didn't have the time to ask the person who the person was, what was his name. But that was also like between all of this, Chaos, that was at least okay. like half. And then I stood in the line. We got boarded. It was 8 a.m. It was the time on my ticket. It was the time that the flight was supposed to take off. But because of the people being under one way of the airport, the plane could not take off until 1 p.m. And everyone was on the runway of the airport. The U.S. Army started to shoot in the air start tear gas, uh, fire, but uh, yeah, it was so difficult like to make people move from the runway. And we were there inside the airplane and saw the military aircraft that the people were sitting on the wings. And it was uh, so sad to see how desperate people were and everyone was terrified. Everyone didn't know what's going to happen to them. So they were somehow trying to save their lives. And all of them, they came to the airport with nothing, with no luggage, with maybe a backpack only. Finally, at 1 p.m., we could take off. And when the airplane take off, it was a very heavy moment for me personally. I was thinking about a lot of things, about, about Afghanistan, about what's going to happen to it, about my family, uh, when I'm going to be able to meet all of them, what's going to happen to me, if it's the right thing that I'm leaving them now or not, is it self, self, uh, self, selfishness or not, what's going to happen. So there were a lot of thoughts in my mind and once it took off, um, I burst into tears. And then once we arrived at the Istanbul airport, like we were very few Afghans, they took our passports and they took us into a salon. And into, into that salon, I saw that I was not the only one, but also like there were high Afghan officials, like ministers, a member of parliament and their families that I was so mad seeing them. Uh, some of them were very high officials. Second vice president were, was there. I really wanted to shout at them hit them and say, like, you are the ones who betrayed 
and now you have the means to travel while Afghans are staying and to deal with, with the yeah. Taliban. Yeah. And after that, they process everyone passport and visas because they, they were politicians, they had visas, but they took four of us to an admissible passenger office. And in that office, my the documents were complete and they said, since you missed one of your flights, the connecting flights, we are going to book it for you. But the rest, the, the three other men, they were very terrified to be deported back to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And they did not know English. So I don't know what happened to them after me. But yeah, I went to the other terminal, I stayed the night at the airport. And then the next day I flew from Istanbul to Chicago and from Chicago to Colorado. Wow. We have to take a moment here because that <laughs> has that sounds like such a nerve-wracking, emotional turmoil of a journey. Yeah, I personally could not believe that I'm into that situation. Like the scene that I was seeing, seeing they were like like a like a film, like a movie. Mm -hmm. They were not looking real for me. I could not believe what we all are going through. Yeah, I mean, just looking back on that period through the news, you know, it was quite shocking. And we all know what a small fraction of what we've saw on TV was reality. So just hearing that. I think for most part in the news, everyone turns into a number, everyone turns into a statistic. So when we're speaking to you now, you know, the magnitude of what Afghanis went through is so apparent and blatant to us. It's heartbreaking. That's so true. Like we became number when an explosion happens, they just say, for example, 20 girls were killed. But if you name each of these girls, if you go to their stories, to their life, there are 20 lives, 20, I don't know, futures. But that's true. We became numbers. Because, yeah, like you're saying, you lives with dreams, with aspirations, with what you want to do. You went to school, you went to university, you want a career for yourself, you want sports in your life. And all of that within a few days was completely derailed. You had to leave your family back home. You had to leave your husband. You're in the US. You're now battling all these emotions. It's so much. When you landed in Colorado, like what happened from there? It just must have been, I guess, surreal, right? Like to kind of process what had happened in the past couple of days. Like the first two days. So Jackie, I was happy that Jackie Faye was there at least like me coming to US for the first time. So that could be so difficult if you Jackie have a friendly was, face. Yeah. Yeah. If Jackie Faye was not there. So she was there. That was good. And then after the first two days that I was busy to get a SIM card to set up a bank account or the very first thing that an international student arrived. Right after that, my program started and it was very difficult for me because like the U.S. education system is very different than mine. And like even a normal international student needs time to settle down. But for me, like it was so difficult. I have been thinking about Afghanistan, what, ha what, what happened there. The time conflict, like it was day here, it was night there and the opposite way. So each, each day when I was waking up, I was so afraid not to hear a bad news about Afghanistan. And then that was the 
time the evacuation started in Afghanistan. So I was trying to, to help my family, but I was not successful in that case. And it was like the first two weeks I have been uh, only, only crying because then after each day you could hear what Taliban is doing. They were arresting and killing the previous soldiers. They banned girls, teenage girls from going to school. They banned women from participating into any societal activities to go to work and playing as a sport, especially outdoor sport. It was, <laughs> how can we think about that while the basic, like the women were deprived of their very basic human rights. And each day you could hear some, something bad about from Afghanistan. So the first two to three weeks was so difficult and I was alone by myself. I like, I speak English, but how could I talk about all of these to, for example, an American who could not understand what I'm saying about uh, what I'm saying. Like I really wanted like someone who I could talk freely, who could understand me, but that was not even there. So I was alone all by myself and all of these things. And that was the first, like the first days of school. So everyone was happy introducing each other, attending to classes with a lot of motivation. We had like the first week celebration, but I could not enjoy any of them because my thoughts were in Afghanistan. Like I was physically there, but not mentally. mentally. How is your family now? Are they safe? Uh, do you keep in touch? What's it like? I keep in touch with them. So it has been very difficult. My sister was trying to go to Uzbekistan, but then the US, uh, the Uzbekistan embassy was shut down and uh, they are not processing visas for Afghanistan. So she is in Kabul doing nothing now. You're in the US now. And I think, you know, just all of the things that you have to deal with and still have to deal with, you know, on an ongoing basis with your family situation, I guess sports were kind of maybe not top of mind, you know, kind of coming into this. But when did you decide to take up sports? Because I think for me personally, and I only speak for myself, but like, you know, moving is somewhat therapy. You know what I mean? It's escapism for me personally and kind of helps me sort through things. So was that similar for you? Did you kind of start to think, oh, you know, I'm going to continue to do triathlon or how did that come about? Because I just having to go through all of the things, just moving country for anyone is a stressful situation. Never mind circumstances, unbelievable circumstances. Yeah. How did that kind of come about? Yeah. So because like I was in the US, I was alone. And so I started to run the first thing out of all sports. I started to run because it was easier to run. You need the running shoes and go outside. And where I'm living, there are very beautiful trees. Uh, very beautiful trails. Uh, everything is good. People are very supportive. It's safe. So why not to go for a run? So I started to run. I didn't have, because of the Kabul's airport situation, I could not bring my triathlon equipment or my bicycle. I mentioned earlier that there were a lot of people who supported me and I'm very thankful for them. If they were not, I might not be able to achieve what I achieved. So one of the people who uh, was following She Can Tries, Facebook or social media, she sent me some equipment, some gears, like a wetsuit, some, yeah, a wetsuit, some uh, sort of, some other triathlon gears. So 
that was very good. Like that was a motivation to start it again. And then slowly everything come, I could gather the equipment I needed. And I learned that I didn't know about, for example, our recreation center. So I went to swimming pool. I explored that and slowly when I found about everything. And also I thought like maybe a sports club can be a good thing to join because like that's good like to train with a club. So my classmate told me about uh, a cycling club and uh, I applied to that and I was part of the team. So it all started slowly and I could go back to, to the training. And I don't remember exactly when I heard about the world championship, but still that was not confirmed and I was losing my trainings. But once that was confirmed, I, I started like to train regularly. So you've got all these variables, but you're still now you've signed up for the championship. When did you start like training seriously for it? Was it in 2022 or had you already started towards the end yeah of yeah in 20 yeah in 2022 like i don't remember but it should be like maybe six months before the race that it was confirmed i'm going to race and i started to train by myself but you know when there was a gap it's difficult to come back to sport to train again so the Tammy, uh, she is the one who sent me some sport gear to start with. She asked me to visit her. She's in California and I visited her and they have a very supportive triathlon community. I spent one week with them and trained with them. So that was really helpful for me to get back into the training. And that support gave me more motivation in addition to the reasons that I had in my mind why I'm going to do that, uh, that support. And everyone's else support gave me gave me more motivation. And this time around, training was different, right? You had access to better facilities. One, you had access, and then you had all these facilities. You are now having this supportive community behind you. So riding on the road, not stationary bike. Yeah. Exactly. So take us through this period in the lead up to the championship, then. Again, like I had all the supports, I had uh, the facilities or equipment I needed, but it's still like the, again, it was the same situation, the full-time program and still the news were kind of difficult like to handle uh, everything. But again, it was different than the training in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan one, and I can say one thing, the motivation that really was my first motivation was the women and girls uh, of Afghanistan. In the past, I have been doing that for them because I was thinking that seeing me, they can follow my footsteps. And that was true. But now everything was changed. Like in the past, I was expecting them or I was trying to invite more women and girls into sports, whatever, whatever sports, especially outdoor sports. But now... Uh, we were going back, like now they don't have the rights to study and to, study. Go to, to go to school. So you had taken like a million steps back. You had made all this progress of gun girls and made all this progress, you know, school education. And then you just found yourself going all the way back. Yeah. And then I shifted my focus. I thought the best thing to do is now to raise awareness about the girls and women of a nation that they are deprived of education 
in 21st century and to ask support. I know like these dark times are going to be over, like there, there is going to be a finish line for all of these dark days for Afghan women and girls in Afghanistan. But it's going to be much easier when their voices are heard, are being heard by the world. And when the world is going to stand in solidarity with them, they are going to stand and support them. That's going to make everything a little bit different. It's going to give them a strength to fight. But when they think that no one is hearing them, their voices are not being heard, no one cares about them, it's going to be more difficult for them. So I thought I'm going to do that to be able to raise voice for them. Meanwhile, there was an underground girls' school that Jackie Faye was in contact with. So I thought like it's a good way to raise some money for them so that they can help more Afghan women and girls with education. Mm-hmm. And so now you've got this massive why, not so much a responsibility, but kind of because you've got this platform and you want to take it as an opportunity to amplify your voice and raise that awareness. You've come to the championship that it's D-Day for you. You know, what's running through your mind? What's running through your head? Tell us. I was nervous. I was stressed a lot because Ironman 70.3 course, especially the bike and run, was a technical course because it was a hilly. And I was terrified of that. And I had the motivation with myself, but still, like, I had the feeling that my training is not enough. So... I was not confident, I can say. I was not confident. and But also I was thinking about why I'm doing this. And the race day, yeah, it was a lot of emotion. And then we heard that the water is going to be very cold. The temperature was very high. I did a swimming practice. It was cold. My feet were cold. And the race day, I was terrified to be very cold and got like when the cold water hits in your face, you might feel you are going to get a panic or what. So I was very terrified of that. But I was in the last waves. So by that time, the weather got warmer and the water was was cold, but not that cold. And I finished the, the swim. And then the transition, the first transition took a little bit more time because I had to wear layers to avoid cold. And the cycling started good, but in mile 17, I got two cramps in my calves and they were very painful. So after that, I was trying to think about my water, hydration, my nutrition, but it's still like the cramps were there. Sometimes they were very strong. Sometimes they were were not bad. Yeah. And uh, there was one part of the course, uh, Snow Canyon. It's a four mile, I think four mile climb all uphill. So I have been always trying of that. And when I was doing some hill trainings, I was thinking that I'm in Snow Canyon. And I did the Snow Canyon one time, but only the Snow Canyon. So that's different. Like, And the Snow Canyon is coming like very end of the bike portion. So when I was at the Snow Canyon, I was going very slow. I was thinking that I cannot meet the cutoff time. And the cramps were very painful. I was thinking of maybe quitting, but also I was thinking, no, I should not quit. Even if I'm slow, I need to keep going. And I was thinking about what I'm doing, why I'm doing this, and about all the supports that I have been getting. So 
none of them should go vested. I got the opportunity. It should not go vested. I'm going to be the first one. It's going to be an opportunity, a platform that people can hear about Afghan women's stories. So I should not give up. So I continue. And finally, I was at the peak. And after that, it was all downhill. And then the one portion, the cramps were still hurting so bad. And I had pain under my foot. I think it was because of the shoes. So my running was very slow and stressful. Uh, like my husband were there. Everyone I know, I gave them a lot of stress. So it was also stressful for, for myself too. But I... I finished. <laughs> what were your thoughts when you crossed over that finish line? A relief again. After each finish line, it's a relief that it's over. Um, I you was flag out. You're like, this is it. I've done it. And I was very close to the cutoff time. So I like one minute, like six to three seconds. Honestly, I was sad that I'm kind of the last and I'm very close to the cutoff time. But after that, I realized how 63 seconds is important in life. <laughs> I think and, you did uh, it. You're part of 1% of the people who can actually even go to the start line. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, just Don and I have never even considered or conceived doing the 70.3. So no. <laughs> it's an achievement, no you, matter you what can, way you see it. Yeah, it's more mental. Mental, I, yeah. I feel like you can do it. And the good thing that happened at the end of the race, well, I was so happy, like when you are giving a platform for us i don't know how other people feel like for me and for other afghan girls because their voices are not being heard so much like i felt we need to be heard and we appreciate like all the opportunities to tell our stories and when the paul the announcer give me the the microphone i don't remember exactly what question he asked but when i talk about why i did that i felt that's an opportunity and I was grateful for that opportunity. Not all the finishers got that opportunity to talk about why they do that. So even giving me that microphone and to talk about why I did this, I appreciate that opportunity to tell like why I did it, yeah. Mm -hmm. And your family back in Afghanistan, you've told them about your accomplishment with this? What are their thoughts? Yeah, my sister is my biggest supporter, also my husband, but my sister, she really encouraged me always. She was so happy and, uh, and it's sometimes difficult to talk to her because for me, it's difficult to talk to her because right now she's at home, she cannot work. And um, when I tell her, I do this, I do that. I feel guilty like for being free and being able to do whatever I want to do. But uh, it's not the case with her. You want to see your sister and also all your country women to be free and to do whatever they want to do. So she was happy and proud. And then same as, uh, say, same as my dad. This is an accomplishment on so many levels, right? It's not just personal. It's communal. What do you think is the message that you have sent out there, not just about yourself, about your, you know, tenacity through this entire process, but also of women from Afghanistan? So the first thing, of course, is about 
the current situation of uh, women and girls in Afghanistan, that they are deprived of their basic rights. The next one is, the first one is to avert them. The next one is to ask for their support and solidarity, support in any ways they can, they can do. If they are an individual, talking about it is a support. If they are an NGO, if they can expand their work to Afghanistan, that's going to be a support. If they know, for example, congressmen, senators, or if they can talk to politicians, or if they are talked to politicians, they can bring it into conversation with the, with the other politicians and help in whatever ways they can, they can help. If they are an institution, an educational institution, they can offer some scholarship to Afghan girls to be able to study ab ab abroad while they cannot do it inside the country. So that's the second one that, that they can support. Also, the other one is that I want everyone, as you mentioned earlier, to be grateful and appreciative of whatever they have in their life, the opportunities they have, the facilities they have. I know we are human, we want, we always want more, but sometimes it's good to sit with ourselves and to, to be grateful of what we have in, in life. Maybe that's something that other, other people want. I'm sure so many Afghan girls want just the simplest thing, just want to get education. Like yeah. Taliban, if they are imposing like restriction on them to wear, to wear in a certain way to, to wear full cover or hijab. I have heard that they said, yeah, they are happy to do that, but they want to study. They want to work. They want to have some sort of freedom. I think, yeah, if more people were grateful and self-reflective, there would be fewer wars and conflicts. I feel so, yeah. I talk to my friends and they talk about what they want in life and they are talking about, oh, like there are some examples. For example, my classmates ask, how was the pool? Uh, it's not good. How, what do you think? I said, for me, like coming from Afghanistan, like the pool was really good. The water yeah. was, the water was good. The pool itself, the length, everything was good. And while we are, for example, fighting, it's, I know it's in the first century, but we are fighting for our basic rights. Women are fighting all over the world or in other parts of the world. They are fighting for, for example, abortion, abortion rights. All of us want freedom, all of freedom of choice, and that's good. And I'm happy that everyone is fighting for what they believe it's tr true. But also, I want them to also think about how other women and girls in Afghanistan, not only in Afghanistan, also in other, some other countries, they want a very normal life. They are very basic, basic things. You know, I speak for both of us to say what an absolute pleasure it is to speak to you today and to hear more and to talk about this. Because I think the news cycle is quite good at what's happening now. And then sometimes things fade, you know, in the public discourse. And I think the absolute, the more we can talk about what's happening for women in Afghanistan and everywhere, the better it is for everyone. And know that we're so appreciative to chat with you today. I guess, you know, you're there, you just had this accomplishment like last week. You're probably not thinking about anything else right now, taking a rest. <laughs> as far as you rest, I'm sure is probably like what most people are super productive at. But do you have anything else on the cards, like coming up from a sports point of view? From sports, I want to be active. Like I feel if I don't 
do any sports, it's going to be difficult for me. It's going to be maybe depressing. Mm, but yeah, but right now uh, I could not think or sign up for any race because I felt that I need to settle down. I'm going to graduate in December and I do not have a legal mm -hmm. status in the U.S. So I need to find the solution that. for that, get a job. And then once I have a job, I feel that I can plan for races or trainings. Yeah. The fun stuff then. Yeah. A mm -hmm. final question to you. And I feel like this is, it's, it's a disservice from our end to even ask you this question, but we do ask all our guests this question. Do you think grit can be developed or is it innate? I think I know the answer to this, but I'm gonna, yeah, I, I just want to see what you have to say. Talking about grit, I think uh, it's in every person. It's in every person, but we need to develop it. We need to improve it. And everyone has the capacity to develop it. And uh, I feel somehow how we develop it depends on the circumstances we are. Uh, sometimes the circumstances that we are can help us to develop that grade. And sometimes just self-awareness can help you to develop that grade. So that would be my answer. It's in everyone's, but you can strengthen it with your circumstances, with self-awareness. And with your dreams, if you have a dreams, of course, achieving dreams are not easy. So you have to pass some obstacles. And once you are trying to achieve that, that grit is going to be developed. Awesome. You've taken us through a roller coaster of emotions. I think, uh, you know, Dawn will agree that we've been on a high and we've been on a low in this conversation. And we really, really thank you for joining us and sharing this amazing story. Yeah, Zainab, you're an inspiration, honestly. Like, again, such a privilege to speak with you today. I'm... Thank you so Thank much. You. Yeah, I feel a real life is like a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. It goes high and up. And we need to talk about both. It's not that we only cover the good things or the high things. So it's a mix of both. And we need to talk about both of it. Thank for you sure. so much for giving me the platform to talk. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, we ask that you please share it with family, teammates, friends, and even frenemies, or share via social media. Please also leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Five stars only. And visit us on themetalset.com for more stories and resources. Thanks again for listening. Your support means the world to us. This is The Metal Set.